Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today on Dan's podcast is Alicia Longwell, who's the longtime curator at the Parish Art Museum. And uh, she goes back far enough so that we can talk about where it used to be, which was on Job's Lane. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about how you came about getting the uh, job and what, what that place was like when you, when you first arrived on uh, the, old, the old parish art museum. Okay, uh, well, this will take us back to uh, 1984. Actually, my husband and I uh, had moved out here we had an old house in Brooklyn, which we rented. He was working on a book on the acting teacher, Sanford Meisner. So he said, let's spend a year out on the East End and see if we like it. And I'll work on my book. And we had two small children at that point. So I said, okay, let's give that a whirl. Well, the funny thing was we had a beautiful summer, not unlike this summer, you know, sunshine every day, no rain. And the one thing the children who were tiny and the parents liked to do was go to the beach. The one thing all of us liked to do. So that's where we spent that summer. And along about this time, when we looked at each other after Labor Day and said, we're not going back, are we? And we went, no, we're not. <laughs> so that's the story. And I sort of wondered what I might do. I had worked at the Museum of Modern Art and worked as a cataloger for for the photographer Richard Avedon, and I sort of wondered what I might do if I went back into the art business, so to speak. And um, the ads were running in the local paper. Uh, I remember them very well because I would casually look at the one ads, and it said, um, brass belt buckle polisher, no experience necessary. I'm not making this up, Dan. And uh, goat herds person, will train. And I thought, well, that's interesting, but I don't know how I would fit into either of those categories. And then in the spring, literally between these two ads was sandwiched one that said museum registrar, which is what I had done at MoMA, uh, local museum, three to five years experience. And I, I thought my husband had put the ad in there to see if I was reading them. I said, my goodness, look at this. And uh, he said, well, you have to go interview. I said, but who will raise the children? And you know what he said? I will, why don't you go and take that job? You'll love it, it'll be great. And that's the story. So here I am 38 years later uh, at the museum, but uh, a lot of changes both in my career and in the museum itself, as you pointed out. Well, the, uh, I visited the museum back in those days and they, all of the very valuable paintings were downstairs in the, in the cellar because the building had been built as a summer museum and it was 
either insulated properly or secure for what were now very valuable uh, works of art. What was down there at that time that was so valuable? Well, we've always had a core collection. The museum was founded, of course, by Samuel Parrish, uh, opened in 1898 and coming up as our 125th anniversary year, which is pretty important. <laughs> and the collection was, by the time I came, it was in climate control storage. So by 84, uh, all the paintings were there. But throughout the building, you're right, it was quite antiquated. It was built over a period of years from 1897 to 1910 and did not have climate control in the building. So it was always a problem and something that the board knew if the museum were to go into the future and have a future, it would have to be uh, either renovated that building or a new building. I remember at the time when they were deciding they bought the land, I think, and what they were talking about doing was recreating, you would know this better than I, studios, which turned out to be much too expensive to build, but describe that. Well, it was this idea, the, uh, once the architects had been selected, the extraordinary firm of Herzog and Demeron based in Basel, Switzerland. And what, what most impressed the, the architectural search committee was the way they talked about the client's needs. They didn't bring their own ideas or concepts. What they wanted to know was what the client uh, needed. They also came on a visit wanting to know everything about uh, this place, the land, as you say, we bought here in Watermill. They wanted to know about the geo geomorphology, what had gone on in this place, um, the whole history of artists. We took them to many artist studios, and they began to think of, you know, typologies of, of, of studios where some artists had converted barns. That was a very lasting impression. There were so many um, 18th and 19th century barns here that had been converted to studios for artists. You know, skylights were put in, there were uh, converted garages, and they just looked at all the ways that artists use their space. So the idea was to sort of evoke that within the buildings. And there were about six um, connected but separate, this idea of pavilions in, in the land. Were they for specific artists, studios that were copied? There were some. The well, one, uh, William Merritt Chase, I was thinking of, had uh, he had converted, a, made a studio out of a room in his house so it would have that more domestic feeling in that studio. Uh, Willem de Kooning would have large skylights and expanses as well, like his studio. So the wonderful ideas uh, would have been a beautiful building. It turned out to be... Um, well, the turn down in the economy, um, it proved to be just too expensive. So you wind up with something that looks like a giant farm building in some ways. Well, it does. It certainly evokes the vernacular buildings here, which is something that Herzog and Demeron always look at when they're building. They don't want their building to stick out, so to speak, not look like uh, something in the surroundings. And um, they actually, when asked um, to design something that would be a bit more economical, would be a bit more 
The original plan had 64 exterior walls. This plan has four. So you can see right away the difference in the <laughs> maintenance, the uh, running of the building. So it was quite a brilliant um, idea. It still came up to tens of millions of dollars. It was big and is a beautiful space. Well, it is. It is. All these things take um, time and money. And uh, what was so wonderful, we had many, many local craftsmen here uh, working on the building. Ben Kropensky was our contractor. So this sort of legendary uh, figure on the East End who took as much pride in this building as anyone any of us who worked on the plans. So that all went hand in glove. Um, the, it's geothermal heat. Many things about um, the building are very, very efficient. Who were the uh, most, uh, I guess, well-known artists who were out here? Can you name five or six of them? I'm sure there were 10 or 20 altogether or more. Well, more, are you mean still with us <laughs> or? No. No, just from the historical. I know a lot of the collection was from back at the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century when we had the Shinnecock uh, School. That's true. After uh, Mr. Parrish died, um, the museum sort of went into a moribund state. His estate couldn't keep it up. It was given to the village of Southampton. And so it was closed for much of the year. And then Mrs. a woman named Rebecca Bowling Littlejohn in the 1950s had the, uh, she wasn't a connoisseur or curator or certainly didn't aspire to be a museum director, but she, from a real uh, civic minded idea to open up this beautiful building and what she did have in which we're eternally grateful, she incorporated it as a educational institution under the bylaws of the state. And also she had the capital idea of collecting some American art, American impressionist painters like William Merritt Chase, uh, like uh, Thomas Moran, um, who were here and practicing at, uh, as you said, at the turn of the century. So ever grateful to her. And that is the extraordinary core collection of American painting. Along came the abstract expressionists Along well, the game. <laughs> well, it seemed that there's a focus more on the realism. I, mean, I, I don't go there all, all that often, but uh, how have you curated it? What, what have you focused yourself on? And, and it was there any interesting stories you could tell the listeners about something that happened uh, during your time? Well, a very, a lot of things that have happened, and of course, really based on a great. Uh, one of the great thrills, I would say, is my being able to talk to artists, listen to artists, visit in their studios. Um, I never, um, I never thought I would have such access to to this kind of uh, extraordinary, extraordinary artists, and uh, who are all so articulate about their work. Really all as curators, all we have to do is listen, I think, and to hear artists speak about their work, which opens extraordinary doors into, into knowing what their painting is about, their painting or their sculpture. Who were some of the more interesting painters that you can recall? That I personally knew or met? Yes. 
Yes. Um, I think Alan Shields, and um, believe me, he was not a painter <laughs> in any other uh, form that art could take. That's where uh, Alan went. Alan was uh, just an extraordinary artist and such a protean mind. And he um, was surely one of the most inventive uh, printmakers, certainly of that period uh, in American art. What, what you see as an artist too in this coming up after the abstract expressionists, as you say, so after Pollock, after de Kooning, uh, after minimalism, really, then artists and after pop. So you have all these major movements and art historians like to talk about major movements like it, they're lockstep and one ends and the other starts. Well, that's not quite true, but uh, we do divide it into uh, digestible chunks. But so Alan Shields, like many artists who are, who are here, like Chuck Close, like Joe Zucker, they came up at a time where you had to do something, you had to be really different to not be an abstract expressionist or a pop artist or a minimalist artist. It's sort of, where do you go then? And this is, uh, I would say, a generation, uh, most of them probably born in the early 40s, uh, those that are still with us now in their 80s. But this is this, is this generation, I, I, I'm always astonished at the, the past that they took art in. It's really amazing. Linda Binglis, Jennifer Bartlett, all these are sometimes called process artists, for lack of a better word. But it's really about the material. It's about what they do with the material and how they handle it. And to, you know, Shields used uh, the kind of... Um, I would say the things that you would make beach chairs out of those strips of uh, strips of nylon or whatever they were. He would weave those into major, major, beautiful uh, things that sort of hang on the wall, but they're not really paintings. It's this inventiveness. I think it's just an extraordinary, uh, just such an extraordinary period in art, and so much about artists who are here. All those I just named have had studios here for a long, long time. Were there any particular shows that you recall that really stood out at the time that they opened and became remarkable in themselves? Well, I would, if I, if I may, uh, I would talk about an <laughs> exhibition that I organized uh, in 2008 um, called Sand. Now, I don't know many curators, I'm sure, might operate in different ways, but I've always had like a clip file. I'm so old, I clip the newspaper. Probably the last person known to man who's still clipping out articles. But I'm, um, I'm doing it. You're doing it. Okay, Dad, we have to we have to have group therapy here. Um, it just uh, over a period of time, I began to think about artwork that had sand in it. Uh, you'd be surprised how many elements or uh, how many artists have added sand to the medium, including Pollock and David Smith and, you know, as, as John Graham to get this certain texture in their paintings. And then other artists, of course, who uh, paint scenes at the beach. Well, there's sand. Uh, sand is a concept because it's um, no one can count the grains of sand, right? It's an infinite, infinite concept to think about sand or stars in the sky. Anyway, all these things 
just intrigued me. And I thought, would that ever be, would that ever come together as an exhibition? You know, you don't really know if you have sort of this large baggy folder with all these different things in it. But um, Trudy Kramer, who was our director then, sort of gave me the green light and she said, okay, do it. This is the summer. And it was the summer show. And I have to say it was one of the more, uh, certainly, there were so many wonderful things to look at. It was almost like the uh, a cornucopia of things and very different things, you know. And I think people really enjoyed it in a lot of sense. There were beautiful paintings. We had paintings of the beach by Winslow Homer and uh, many important names, a beautiful big Osorio painting. So it was the kind, it had, I hope, something for everyone. <laughs> And people really seemed to enjoy it. It was, uh, you might say, a very simple idea, but it sort of grew. People were very generous. We had uh, some great, great loans to the show. And I, I always look back on that fondly. Yeah. When you drive by the museum, often you can see uh, huge lettering on the side of the building. There's also giant sculptures out front. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about... Uh, who did those and how you selected them? Well, you know, in the pandemic, of course, we closed like everything else in March. And by the summer, um, the idea was to, and something we ha had not done very much, although the beautiful Liechtenstein pieces have been, um, you know, our, our clarion call there by the highway for a very long time, but to have perhaps more sculpture also uh, as a way to attract passers-by, you know, and to come and people were, were able to tour the outside of the museum and the meadow and yet be outside be, because we were closed and also feel safe about coming and looking. Um, the wonderful neon that has been on the facade, we had uh, Clifford Ross's wonderful wave, the LED wave, um, also now Hank Willis Thomas's uh, extraordinary piece called Remember Me uh, yeah. is neon and only visible at night. Uh, we had a wonderful piece called Everything's Going to Be All Right, uh, which have sort of struck, you know, struck a note with people, I think. And it's I don't want to call it drive by art, but, you know, the nice thing is, it's on at night, the neon, and you can see the museum, and it gives a wonderful, wonderful, you know, light and life to the building as well. We don't stay on all night. We go off at 11. But uh, we've had a wonderful response to the uh, gorgeous Isaginskin sculpture, the very tall orchids which bloom uh, uh, right at the height of the roof. Really a striking piece. So. That's been a real uh, innovation for us and something that absolutely we'll continue to do more of. Well, that's, and now after how many years? 35, you, are you retiring? Is that, 30, when, is, 30, when does that happen? When does it happen? Um, uh, first, uh, October 9th, let's <laughs> My last day. I see. Clean out my desk, Dan, that's gonna be cool. <laughs> Send you on your way packing. <laughs> I am. I'm. Um, I'm. Uh, I'm trying to uh, minimize. Is what I'm trying to do. 
I want to I want to leave with a suitcase and a maybe a cat and a few things in the car. <laughs> and anyway, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We've uh, gone through the twenty minutes a lot. I'm talking to Alicia Longwell, who's the current curator of the parish, who's seen it grow from its uh, modest beginnings in Job's Lane to what we have today. And thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Dan. Sure. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.